Folks, not gonna lie to you, this is a humdinger of an episode. First of all, we are gonna take a look at the Australian, I don't wanna say classic, but it's certainly a show that airs on television. It's called Rosehaven. We are also gonna take a look at some legitimate cinema classics. Uh, there's a series of movies that I call the Dark Knight Trilogy. And because this podcast is doing nothing but keeping up with the most modern of TV shows and movies, we will be talking about Christopher Nolan's 2005 onwards series of movies. But they've been playing in the cinemas recently, so there's reasons to talk about it. But we're going to get to that. And also, there's a brand new podcast, because the one thing I've learned about marketing oneself is to say, hey, look, here's a product that we have, but there's a much better product over here that you should be listening to instead. So we're going to do that on the podcast. There's a new podcast talking about the TV show The Office. It's a 12-part miniseries. And look, I'm obsessed with this thing. Chris, I think, also has some very strong thoughts on it. So we're going to talk about The Office and The Office podcast. Folks, this is a hell of a lot of podcasts to listen to. And there's only one way to really get started on it. And that's by listening to the theme song. And that starts now. My name is Dan Barrett. I'm joined, as always, on this by Mr. Christopher Yates. Hi, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you once again about things on the television. Indeed. So if people are unfamiliar with this here pod, the entire premise of it is this, is thus. Myself and Chris, we've known each other now for somewhere between 15 to 75 years. It's somewhere thereabouts. There's a ballpark. We've known each other for a long time. A strong foundation of our friendship has been based on the idea of the one question that so many of us ask in today's complicated, diversely intricate society. What have you been watching on TV? And so I've asked that question to Chris many times. He's asked it an equal number of times to me. And we've had many conversations based on that very idea. And we've decided to capture it in audio form, deliver it as a podcast. Seemed a shame that it was just getting lost out there in the universe and that other people could be enjoying our wonderful band. That's exactly it. So, I mean, for years I've given Chris a whole bunch of recommendations. He's watched one or two of them. <laughs> yes, out of the many thousand. I think I've probably watched about six. Indeed. And you've enjoyed each and every one of them. Yes, true. And yeah, when we you You've learn. never gone wrong with, but when I've actually listened. Yeah, it's, it's when I've actually watched something that you've suggested, it has genuinely been a good mm. time. Anyway, we're trying to bring that to podcast form. Trying. Succeeding, <laughs> I think you mean. Sorry, we are bringing this to podcast form. Exactly. Yeah. And look, people are talking. There's a buzz on the streets. Chris Yates, the one thing that I've definitely found doing this podcast in... Because we've been doing this now for over a year. Like we... Uh, about Amazing. two episodes ago, we passed podcast 69. And I had a bit of a quiet laugh to myself as yeah. I typed that into the metadata. I feel like that should have been cause for celebration. We should have had a themed episode. We'll wait for episode number 420. Okay, I can't imagine what would be going on, going on there, Chris. <laughs> I'll explain it to you later, dear. <laughs> when I'm older. <laughs> but Chris, the one thing I've suddenly noticed over the year plus that we've been doing this podcast for is that when we started doing the podcast, there was a whole bunch of new shows starting each and every week. Obviously, we're living in the day yeah. and age of the stupid virus. And as a result, like the number of new shows and movies, some weeks it's plentiful, but there's a lot of really dry weeks now. And I've suddenly noticed that over the last, we'll say, month and a half, you and I have been talking about movies a heck of a lot more than we used to. Yeah, that's right. And and also, um, you know, we've delved into some old classics like Freaks and Geeks a couple of weeks ago and things that I guess we would have discussed on a podcast had we had a podcast 
when those things came out eventually. <laughs> yeah. But I've got to say, I've I've been really enjoying it. Uh, the constant barrage of new information and new programs has uh, is a little bit much for my um, delicate sensitivities. So to be able to talk about some things that are you know a bit more familiar and having a bit more of a basis in and and having a bit more history about them i think it's been fun and also i mean i've been chatting about this a lot i think we've mentioned this probably too much but you know there's a certain comfort in revisiting things that um in these sort of times of these in these uncertain times uh, i'm finding genuine comfort in that in trying to not necessarily get into new stories but just kind of re-examine things that i've liked at one point and trying to, you know, for one, seeing if I still like them as much as I once did, but also, you know, being a bit more analytical about what are the things that I do and don't like about these things has been um, a lot. Yeah. It's brought me a lot of comfort in this time and a bit of reflection in that way. I think it's been, it's been good. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm someone who like quite frequently, I'll go back to a show that I've enjoyed from yesteryear and I'll just go back through it and do exactly what you're talking about, which is sort of challenge my own sort of thoughts of, is this as good as I remember it being? What was it I liked about it? What do I like about it now that maybe I didn't back then? You know, there's definitely lots of new takeaways you can have from revisiting a TV show. But I've definitely found in like maybe the last two or three weeks, my interest in watching serialized TV has actually been quite low. And instead I've been watching purely TV for comfort. And it's ridiculous things like Flora's Lava, I was watching Ugly Delicious, a whole bunch of just lightweight fluff TV programs. But then I've just been watching a lot of movies. And so part of this is that cinemas at the moment don't have new movies. And so, well, there's a couple of new movies, but essentially the great thing about movie, like going to the movies at the moment for the couple of states in Australia that you can do this. And I appreciate we're in a very privileged position to be able to go to the movies. Like, yeah. At the, <laughs> at the moment, like globally, there are not many countries around the world where people are actively going to the movies. Right. And so like when I've been going there quite regularly over the weekend, I've definitely sort of appreciated the opportunity that I actually have to be able to do that. And there's very few people at the cinema as well, which is very exciting to me. I've been enjoying that a lot. Yes. That's a nice time to go to the cinema when there's no other... nice time to share the experience of movies with other people when there's very few of them. <laughs> which is how I prefer to do it. But yeah, gone to the movies, like, first of all, there's few people there, but the movies playing are just old classics. And to the point where over the most recent weekend, I went and saw the Dark Knight movies. So this is Christopher Nolan's movie. So Batman Begins, which was 2005. The Dark Knight, which I want to say is 2008. And I'm going to say Dark Knight Rises was 2012. I think I got my years right there. Anyway, I went and saw those movies, but I'm going to talk about those purely because... I hadn't watched them for quite a while. I had some beliefs as to what I had thought about the movies in the past and watching them in a cinema over the weekend, it certainly had me questioning sort of what I had believed as just the established narrative, I guess, surrounding these movies. Anyway, we're going to get to this in just a moment. There's no going back. You've changed things forever. And why do you want to kill me? (laughs) I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, 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 you, you complete me. You're garbage, you kills for money. Don't talk like one of them, you're not. Even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak, like me. They need you right now. When they don't, they'll cast you out. So, Chris, as you'd be well aware, that was one Heath Ledger, a Vale Heath Ledger, uh, playing the Joker. And then also we had Christian Bale playing Batman, the Batman, 
Bruce Wayne. You know, all three. Now, Chris, mm. I don't believe you've ever all watched three. any of these movies. Is that right? Uh, no, look, I've seen the Heath Ledger one. So that's the Dark Knight. That's the middle one of the three. And quite frankly, that's, that's the best of the three as well. So if you've seen that one, you've definitely, you've peaked. I didn't love it. Didn't love it. So I just, I just don't <laughs> even know how to... No, look, I mean, I haven't seen it since it was at the cinema. So, and where I did see it at the cinema and I, and I enjoyed it at the time. Dan, I, I, even, I feel like even uh, the 15 years ago or wherever that that, that came out, 12, 12 years, years ago, ago yeah. 13 years ago, um, I was already an old man at that point. <laughs> and the um, watching the sort of the, the big, I feel like the the thing that uh, really, you know, turned me off it was the action scenes and this kind of like, it was, it was in this period where the action scenes were all so big and CGI and um, full of like stuff going on that you couldn't even really keep track of it. So I, I always felt like uh, just completely bored during action films during that period because they just had these ridiculously large set pieces that were all computer generated. You could, it was happening so fast you couldn't really tell what was going on. This is the one takeaway. This is the one thing I remember about that movie and also remembering how good um, Heath Ledger was. But the um, yeah, the sort of just the way that they presented the action in those films was just a massive turnoff for me. But you know what I find interesting I about that is, and I might be wrong about that. What I find interesting about that is of yeah. all the sort of big action superheroes and action films of like the last 20 years, this is probably one of them that actually had a lot more practical effects than most. Right. Well, there yeah. you go. Yeah. So it is just the lingering memories of that that are um, in my head. And yeah, maybe it may be different to that. But um, yeah, there was something about the speed and the darkness of the action scenes where I was just like, ah, oh, well, I'll just wait and see, you know, who I'll just wait and see what happens at the end. I'm going to tune out now. <laughs> And then would wait till the action scene finished to see what the resolution of it was. But uh, no, that's interesting that you say that. I had a mixed reaction to them. So the first one came out in 2005. And this is pre-Iron Man and the birth of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So when we started getting superhero films sure. every two or three, like two or three of them a year. So we hadn't quite reached that stage yet. But there had been a whole bunch of Batman movies before this. There was the Spider-Man films that had recently been playing in the theatres. So this was suddenly an era that it's not like it was devoid of superhero films at the time, but there suddenly wasn't the abundance of them that we find today. But 2005, the one thing that I think that Batman Begins did that really, I guess, maybe revolutionized the genre of the superhero film is that it was the first one that really came along that was very uh, reverential to the comic books. There was a lot of imagery that had taken from particularly a comic book called Batman Year One but certainly from uh, Frank mm -hmm. Miller's Dark Knight uh, Returns and a couple of other sort of seminal Batman comics. But they took a lot of the ideas from some very well-known Batman comics and incorporated it into the movie, and they weren't telling a story that was like for like what we'd seen in the comics. But anyone who was familiar with those texts would go, oh, wait, this is absolutely what they're doing here. And then there were one or two scenes that actually were lifted directly out. So, like, as someone who's read these comics, you know, countless times over the years... I got a real thrill out of being able to see that. There was definitely a lot of thrill for me as a fan to be able to watch that on the screen and say, look, I understand what these references are. I'm really sort of quite in on the text. But I did feel that that film really held up particularly well to repeat viewings. I watched it on a small screen, like on presumably Blu-ray or DVD, you know, for a couple of times after it had come out in the cinema. And it was certainly fine, but I didn't really get the thrill that I had when I sat in the cinema the first time and really was just sort of blown away by a movie actually bringing comic books to life like this. And as a viewer, afterwards, I was like, you know, it's okay. I'm glad this movie was made, but it's perfectly something that I don't really need to revisit. 
Then The Dark Knight came along and I legitimately think it's a great movie. Uh, it's definitely got some very big, bold set pieces. I wouldn't agree with you at all that I think the special effects are over the top with them. There's definitely one sequence right at the end of the film and it's the only sequence in the entire thing that doesn't work, which is this big action set piece with uh, Batman jumping around a construction site with some people that are made up to look like the um, like gunmen, but they're not really. And it's this whole waste of about 10 minutes of your life. I don't care for that scene I reckon at all. this is exactly what I'm thinking yeah. about. And yeah. the end of the movie kind of hinges on this scene. And so that doesn't really quite work for me at all. It kind of brings the movie to just like a... It's not even like comes to like a slow sort of snail pace at that point. It stops the movie dead in its tracks. And then the final sort of yeah, sequence, yeah. which has this... Uh, thematic idea that they've been sort of working through the entire film, which is that uh, Batman as a uh, as a presence, a theatrical character within Gotham City, doesn't really need to exist anymore because you've actually got people who are deputized members of the law who are taking the position that Batman is, which is cleaning up Gotham City. Like these people are doing just as good a job as he was, and that Gotham doesn't really need him. But what the actual movie is about is the fact that everyday people can be corrupted. And so the one great hope that the city had ends up being corrupted by the end of this movie. So the Batman character ends up faking that he's responsible for this guy's death, goes on the run, and you get this classic line that people have been playfully talking about for years, which is becoming the hero that such and such needs as opposed to the hero that such and such deserves. I always thought that was from The Simpsons. <laughs> I mean, you'd think. Most great lines are originally from The Simpsons, Chris. <laughs> So you've got that. And so I walked out of The Dark Knight, like I think everyone except for Chris, and said, you know what, that was a great film. Some really great performances in there. That action sequence at the end, that was a bit shit. But for the most part, it was actually a really intensely good movie. And then four years later, with the weight of expectation, they have this film, The Dark Knight Rises, that came out. And The Dark Knight Rises suffers from, we'll say two things. The biggest thing is that Heath Ledger unfortunately died straight after The Dark Knight came out. I don't think he was even alive by the time the film's released. Yeah, I'm not sure. That yeah, I think he right, might have passed before yeah. the film actually came out. So everyone went into The Dark Knight saying, hey, this is the last Heath Ledger performance, which, I mean, totally, if you yeah. think about Heath Ledger's career, he'd certainly been in some good films until that point, but there wasn't really something which was truly iconic. Like, he hadn't become one of the greats by the time that he actually had passed away. No. So he called, like, Brokeback Mountain, which showed a lot of promise that, hey, look, this is a guy we really should be paying attention to. But it wasn't like he was, you know, like a De Niro by that stage. But then when The Dark Knight came out, no. like, it kind of fell into this period of, um, like, sort of James Dean reverence, where it was like, you know, actor taken too early in his career, like, imagine what would have, could have come after this. And I don't think anyone looks at James Dean as being yeah. one of the great actors, but he was one of the great sort of screen presences, I guess, in the limited number of films that he was in. And a great... Yeah, and a great hope, I think, too. Mm. And he, I, I think he passed away before any of his films came no, out. No, no, right? so I or think maybe... he'd been in three films. Yeah, yeah. right. It definitely was, he, he definitely was not around by the release of the last one, which I think was giant, but yeah. Yeah, um, so yeah, you've got Heath Ledger where everyone looked at his performance in this and it's quite easy to put in a like super villain performance in one of these sort of comic book movies. But like, unless you're talking about maybe Jack Nicholson from Batman... Like, no one looks at it as being, like, sort of a great sort of iconic, you know, just amazing performance. Like, when you're thinking about the great works of Jim Carrey, you don't think about Batman forever immediately. 
I was just going to say, except for, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger's <laughs> career-defining turn as Mr. Freeze. Ice to see you. <laughs> People are still saying those lines, Dan. <laughs> no, I know exactly what you mean. And it's weird the way the joke the joke has become this kind of, like, you know, character that, um, only since Jack Nicholson, but it's become this sort of very prestigious role to play. And now, you know, we've had that again with Wyke and Phoenix, and it's um, it doesn't seem to be going away. And, and, and of course, you know, your favourite actor, Jared Leto's... Um, <laughs> Who could forget fantastic performance as well? Um, but you know, it's a it's this sort of it's become this revered character to to play, and I think you know it wasn't just it was Heath Ledger had. Well, I mean, Heath Ledger is really why. Yeah, yeah, the reason why. As much as Jack Nicholson's performance in Batman was crazy, and um, you know, had a lot of there was a lot to talk about that, and you know, there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of weight put in the fact that Jack Nicholson's in that film mm. as to its success. Um, but yeah, well, it certainly um, was Heath Ledger doing it in this way that I think has elevated this position, uh, elevated the character to this weird position of like, you know, every actor. Yeah, and so this is the thing. So you're talking about it being prestige, but I'd also say that the character pre-Nicholson was fairly iconic with Cesar Romero in the 66 Batman TV show as well. Well, of course, I'm not, not to take anything away from Cesar Romero's fantastic performance, but you know. No, but like they are different types of... Uh, perspective that I think people have on the role, which is that Cesar Romero, people saw it as like this sort of zany, just like weird thing that this actor did for a while. And, you know, we look at it with the fun that was imbued totally. in that series, but we don't really think about it being like an iconic, I mean, it suddenly became an iconic role for him, whether or not he'd like to <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah. see it that way or not. But yeah, I mean, he suddenly had like a body of work. And when you think about Cesar Romero, like there is enough of a body of work that you're not just typecasting him as the Joker in the way that people who were much sort of uh, fresher in their careers, like Adam West and Burt Ward, like they could never quite escape being Batman and Robin for the rest yeah. of their careers. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But like Cesar Romero was established, as was Burgess Meredith and a whole bunch of the other older actors. And that's also the fun of watching the 60s Batman TV show in that... You think about, like, superhero movies today and various superhero TV shows, like, it's a very youth-driven enterprise. But when you watch the 60s Batman, basically Batman's out there, like, trying to match wits and, like, fight people who are in their mid-60s, yeah. early 70s. Like, there's this whole, there's a strong reference for golden age era Hollywood. And so, like, all these actors who'd been around for, like, 20, 30 years until, like, prior... And it like been because don't forget sixty six. So these are people who were like in maybe movies in like the yeah, early forties, yeah. going through to like sixty six. Like they were really just stretching back and bringing back all these great actors to have some time in the sun within the old Batman TV show. And so when you're watching it, it's like, why on earth is this person like suddenly seen as like this really sort of hit presence on this fairly popular TV show did, at the time? Did you go it's watch weird. the um, Dark Knight trilogy just so that you could talk about uh, Batman nineteen sixty six TV show again? Uh, maybe. No. <laughs> okay, so just finishing that out. So we've got The Dark Knight Rises, which came out four years afterwards. And that film, it owed a lot more of what it was doing in that film, so the thematic ideas of Batman Begins rather than The Dark Knight, which was the more successful of the yeah. three films. And I definitely remember walking away from The Dark Knight Rises. And The Dark Knight Rises, much like Batman Begins, took a lot of ideas from the comic books and brought them to life in the cinema. So... The main thing they're playing with in Dark Knight Rises is this comic book series that ran for about a year in the Batman comics called uh, No Man's Land, where Gotham City gets shut down from the rest of the United States, and uh, basically all the villains in Gotham City start taking over various sort of pockets of the city and become sort of crime lords looking after 
you know, a couple of blocks radius and all of them become sort of themed after the villain. And, you know, there's a lot of fun things going on in that year, but it's really sort of dark and gritty and they bring that to life in this uh, Dark, Knight, uh, Dark Knight Rises film. The thing is that, like, I wanted it to be The Dark Knight and instead it was Batman Begins, a film that I'd already written off as not really enjoying that much. So when Dark Knight Rises came out, I thought, you know what, it's fine. There are a few things I liked, but by and large, yeah, sure. you know, whatever. And I got on with my life. So I hadn't really watched, I think, a lot of these films more than maybe once or twice since they'd been in the cinema, except The Dark Knight, which I have seen a whole bunch yeah. of times like throughout the years. But as I was saying, at the, like, at the cinemas at the moment, they're just playing a whole bunch of older films. And over the weekend, they decided they'd play the three Batman, like the Nolan Batman films, not on one day, which would have made life very convenient <laughs> for me. But instead, they played Batman Begins on Friday night and then The Dark Knight on Saturday night, followed by Dark Knight Rise on Sunday afternoon. So I went to the cinema three times over the and weekend. Just saw Batman. <laughs> each to see myself in Nolan Batman film. But I had a great time. Um, the the thing that I I should say, the thing that I walked away after yeah. watching all three is that while I suddenly think that my feelings about the movies when I initially saw them suddenly hold true, there's something about Nolan as a filmmaker, and it's definitely evident within the Batman Dark Knight movies. I don't think his films work on a TV screen. I don't think they're big enough. Like, he's a very cinematic yeah, right. director, and I don't know there's a lot of substance really happening with a lot of his movies, but there's so much, like, smart spectacle. Yeah. And, like, it, it kind of... It hurts me a little bit, you saying that this film was so special effects heavy and didn't really sort of resonate beyond that, because I actually think that these are some of the few films that actually really transcend that to be smart spectacle in the same way that you could watch, say, like, Starship Troopers and think, oh, that's actually smart yeah, spectacle. Sure. Uh, you could watch... All I can think of now is Verhoeven movies, <laughs> which is ridiculous. But, you know, I mean, there's so many, like, bad, dumb spectacle movies which work perfectly fine on a cinema screen, but they are dumb. But, like, these, I think, are actually well-executed, incredibly smart, clever, spectacle films. And I enjoy the hell out of it. I had a great time over the weekend watching these three movies. The thematic and iconography... The thematics and iconography of it really resonated with me. I had such a ball watching them on a big screen... And I don't want to do it on a small screen again because I kind of feel it's just going to take it away from the joy that I've had. From um, it. Another interesting thing to make to point out about maybe my initial reaction to them is that, of course, I wasn't really watching a lot of big budget films back then and certainly not a lot of stuff with um, massive special effects. So, you know, looking back at it now and comparing it to sort of Avenger End Avengers Endgame or whatever, um, where there's or, or um, any of the new Star Wars films where you've got, you know, so much of that going on. I can understand that it doesn't um, compare to those kind of ones, but yeah, that was definitely the, the vibe I had at the time. I got to ask you a question though. Can you rank for me your Batmans from, I'm sure this must be something you've got ready to go in the top of your head. Like yeah. 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 Actors playing Batman um, through the generations from best to worst. From best to worst. Oh, look, I mean, how does one even really do this? I mean, there's been so many greats. <laughs> All right, from best to to not to, okay. to just a little bit not as best. When I think about movie Batman, like immediately I think about Michael Keaton because yeah. he's my first. You never forget your first. And like, he actually isn't my first. My first is Adam West because I suddenly watched the Batman TV show prior to going and see the live action Michael Keaton film. But even so, just when I think about Batman, I think about Michael Keaton. And also I'd say the we best... We can say that Adam West is just... We can easily say that Adam West is the, the pinnacle Batman. So we're, we're ranking the ones underneath the <laughs> TV Batman. So. He's the alpha. Yeah, yeah, the other Batman. 
Yeah, Papa Bat. But no, Michael Keaton, and he is in the best Batman movie as well, which is Batman Returns. I used to think that, but I watched Batman Returns not long ago, and it was I struggled to get through it, to be honest. I really did think it was the best film forever, the best of the Batman films for a long time. But I've, I think I've gone back to liking the original Tim Burton one more than Batman Returns now, despite Danny DeVito, who is, you know, the greatest actor of all time. I think I actually like uh, Michelle Pfeiffer a little bit more in that film. Michelle Pfeiffer is amazing as well. Yes, it's very good. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I, I think when I watched it again, I had such heightened, you know, I had such fond memories of it that I maybe elevated a little bit more in my head than, than how it Look, actually I will say out. this about Batman Returns. I have gone back and rewatched it a couple of times and felt the same way you did, but then I've gone back and watched it again and just felt like, oh no, this actually is the best one. Yeah, so yeah. Maybe there's maybe... like a mood dependency to it or something, but. Yeah, I, 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 I should definitely watch it again. I will. Having watched like the 1989 Batman a couple of weeks ago, again, because they're just playing old movies. Yeah, I'm not just yeah. purposely going out and watching Batman stuff. This is just what's <laughs> in the cinema right now. But yeah, like having watched that, I do want to watch Batman Returns again. So yeah. I'm going to give that a crack watch party. Yeah. So Michael Keaton's number one? Michael Keaton's number one. I'm going to go I'd just drop in Adam West as number two. Okay, sure. So if people watching, listening to this haven't actually gone back and watched the original Batman show or think that I remember that show from a kid and I get what that show was, like make an effort, try to find some episodes of that show because it is a very uh, different program that I think most people really appreciate it as being. Yeah, it is so yeah. much better than you will remember it being. Like it's legitimately <laughs> an amazing watch even now. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like he's the one that makes the show as well. There's a couple of episodes where he does stuff on that show like, you can find it on YouTube. There's this amazing sequence where he's got the bat phone in one hand and a regular phone in the other one. And he's got this conversation he's been having, I think, as Batman initially with Commissioner Gordon. And then Commissioner Gordon's, like, called Bruce Wayne. And so Commissioner Gordon has put the two <laughs> phones, like, side by side on his end because that's how phones work. Uh, and then you've just got the sequence where you're watching Adam West performing as both Batman and Bruce Wayne, having a conversation with himself going from one handset to the other. It is incredible. It is the most manic, crazy thing I've ever seen on TV before. <laughs> like, it really is just a stellar performance. Batman? Yes, Mr. Wayne. Have you heard Mr. Freeze's scurrilous demands? Just briefly. If Robin and I hacked his go-betweens, are you prepared to make the telecast at midnight and pay the ransom, Mr. Wayne? I have no choice, Batman. Then may I suggest you tape the broadcast from the commissioner's office an hour earlier, and we will have a dummy package of money. A dummy package of money? That sounds risky. Risk is our business, Mr. Wayne. Of course, Batman, I have the same faith in you that all of Gotham City has. I hope Robin and I are deserving of that faith. I'll make the necessary arrangements and meet you at the commissioner's office at 11. Fine. Yeah, it's overshadowed by its cheese and by the, you know, there's so many iconic things to remember about that show, like the special, you know, the, the sound effects and the, there's there's all these just like easy visual memories, like the walking up the wall and all that kind of stuff. But the actual, the writing and the comedy and the humor and stuff in it is just, yeah, it's, it's outrageously really, really funny. And also the episodes I'd recommend always checking out are the ones with Julie Newmar as Catwoman. I'm talking about Adam West being an amazing performer. She's also incredible. And when you watch what she's doing, like she plays with this complete psychopath. Like I didn't realize just how sort of unhinged she was until I uh, rewatched the show a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, I should say as well, I used to host a podcast about the 1960s Batman TV show when I was working for SBS. Uh, so I've suddenly watched a lot of Batman in the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ca 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 sorry, capping okay, off the uh, rankings. Back, back okay. on track. Michael Keaton, 
Adam West. I guess, look, I, I just don't even... I guess Christian Bale. He's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to say... Well, you well, got George Clooney. Left? Ben Affleck. Jesus Christ. You know what? I actually think that Affleck was good. I just don't think the movies he was in necessarily fit the mood of the viewership at the time. I don't really feel like Ben Affleck fits any movie that has ever been made that he's been in and he's just terrible. I disagree. There's a lot about Affleck that I like. All right. We'll, we can, we can yeah. continue to agree to disagree about that. He's been in a lot of bad movies over the years. And look, I'm sure he would agree with that. But by and large, I think he's genuinely good, even if sometimes he's just like badly miscast. But when he's really well cast in a really good movie, like there's no one better. Like watch something like, say, Gone Girl, for example. <laughs> like he's incredible in that. Never going to watch that. Have you seen Gone Girl? No, I'm not going to watch that. No, Gone Girl is good. It's David Fincher. Mm. Oh, look, we're going we're gonna to take this offline. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I, I feel it's going to require quite a bit of time to put you into this. But no, Gone Girl is one of the great films for like the last 10 years that... Like, you're looking at me disbelieving, but I'm telling you, like, it is good. <laughs> all right, all right. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, Clooney's above Bale? Okay. See, Clooney's, like, in, like, bad movies. Yeah, Like, yeah. those Batman movies are terrible, but he's kind of good in them. And I'd kind of like to have seen what he would be like in a good Batman film. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, Val Kilmer as well. Like, he's good, but again, and, like, he's just in a bad Batman movie. Yeah. And Ben Affleck. I actually don't think the Zack Snyder films are necessarily bad. But that's not necessarily in line with what I think people were after. Like, Marvel was kind of dominating the last 10 to 15 years of these superhero films. And there's an expectation set as to what these movies need to be. Yeah. And his films were working completely against that. That I think a lot of people came to it going, you know what, this isn't really what I came here for. Yeah. And just, you know, push it aside in revulsion. Not that they're perfect films. This is that particularly Man of Steel has got like a few issues going on in it that kind of just sink the movie. Yeah. But, like, there's enough good stuff going on in them as well that I don't think you can just ignore them entirely. I can, and I will. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get back to Gone Girl in a little bit, Chris. All right, all right. The Dark Knight trilogy, if you haven't seen it for a while, if you've got a very big television, I strongly recommend checking it out. Or if you, it's if it's playing at your local cinema, and around the country these films are just kind of cropping up, and it's not necessarily happening at the same time in over every state as well. Yeah, right. I was going to ask you about that, what, how, how this all is all working, because I've seen some things that have been um, yeah, pushed that look like they are kind of going to all cinemas, but then other things that are just popping up in, in strange places. It, look, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah, right. And different chains have films at different times as well. Yeah. So I noticed that I think Pulp Fiction was playing in like event cinemas about yeah, right. two weeks ago, like the first weekend that cinemas opened again. But then it's playing at like Hoyt's next weekend. Wow. So they're getting it's... like really short licensing deals or something for them or... Yeah, like, most of these things are just playing, like, one or two sessions. Like, the Dark Knight movies, like, literally, the Batman Begins is just on Friday night yeah, at, like, right. 7.30. And if you didn't go to that session, and it's playing at a few different theatres, but if you didn't go then, then it just weren't going to see it. Wow, it's really interesting, isn't it? What an interesting time. And as I said, no one's there, so it's not like people are actually taking advantage of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it worse than being open at this point? I guess that's a whole other conversation that you'll probably have in the newsletter, but... There's, there's more people coming in than is worth it if they just shut the thing up entirely. Right. Yeah. Well, that's and also, you've like... got to have it open so that when, like, new movies come out, like when Tenet comes out, which is the new yeah. Christopher Nolan uh, movie that's... It was supposed to rejuvenate cinemas and get everyone excited about movies again. But you can't just, like, open up the theatre and then a day later play Tenet. Like, yeah, it sort yeah. of needs... To, things need to be open for a little bit and needs to be, like, a familiarity with the idea that cinemas are open. For sure. Yeah. But anyway, mm. Dark Knight movies, 
definitely check it out. Uh, the big screen movies, but again, like watching it at home, I just don't know if the movies work at all. Interesting. All right, now time for the good part where I get to talk about The Office again. Okay, Chris, can before we get started talking about The Office, can I play a clip from The Office? Please. And I very specifically chose this clip because it came in the first season of the show. It's from an episode called The Dundies. And Chris, do you want to explain what happened in The Dundies? Well, geez, I haven't watched the first season for a long time, but I, the Dundies are the awards handed out to the um, staff in the office um, based on amusing quirks about their personality and their stuff. And they're a great way for Michael Scott, the boss, to be able to show both his total jerk side and also his more tender, sensitive side. Yeah. Now, I think this episode is a seminal episode in the office. And like it was kind of the turning point for me as a viewer. And the clip I'm going to play in a moment reflects what it is that I think exists on the very pivot as to where suddenly I like latched into this show going, oh, wait a sec. No, this show has actually got something else happening for it. So through the first season of the show, Michael Scott is particularly a massive jerk. And they start softening him right towards the end of the first season. But then as the show goes on, like he sort of, he's largely a jerk through it, but you certainly see the sort of softer side of him come through with a strong regularity that suddenly isn't there in the early run of the show. Absolutely. And, and isn't, um, you know, the reason he's mostly being a jerk is because he's based on David Brent, who was just a horrible character that had very, very little redeeming uh, qualities about himself, even when they tried to sort of uh, make him a little bit likable and stuff. It was still pretty hard to like David Brent right to the end. You definitely weren't rooting for him in the same way you root for Michael Scott, I don't think. Absolutely. So in this episode, in the clip I'm about to play, the Dundies have been staged. They've gone to, I want to say it's a Chili's restaurant yeah, pretty sure that sounds about right yeah so they've gone to a chili's which is a chain of like i, th- I presume they're mexican restaurants i i assume so yes it's just like generic sort of white bread takes on mexican food and i guess other sort of like dude food type products yes that would be my reading from the various popular culture <laughs> references that i've had exposed to chili's yeah, exactly. as well. yeah I've, I've never been to a chili's myself uh, so you've got this and Michael Scott's been like standing in front of everyone. They've like got a section of the restaurant that's been, um, you know, siphoned off a side for them to have their little events. He's got a PA system. He's just been making everyone from the, from the office from Dunder Mifflin miserable <laughs> as he's reading out these terrible awards. They're all there because it's like free drinks and, you know, they get to spend time sociably with one or two of their colleagues that they actually like and then just, you know, suffer through with the rest of them. Because that's what's great about the show. Like, they don't really like each other. There'll be, like, allegiances within the office, but, like, no one's really 100% in on everyone. No, absolutely not. Particularly their boss. Yes. Anyway, (laughs) Michael Scott's been terrible to everyone, and then there's, like, a guy who's, like, drunkenly there with his mates, like, just off to the side, who starts ripping into Michael Scott and just completely destroys him. Michael Scott loses all sense of um, control over the situation. He's been personally wounded by the comments being made by this guy and things have just like fallen apart. So Michael Scott, he's dejected. He's kind of just brought the Dundies to a very abrupt end. And then this happens. I had a few more Dundies to uh, give out tonight, but I'm just going to cut it short and wrap it up so everybody can enjoy their food. Um, Thanks for listening. Those of you who listened, this last Dundee is for Kevin. This is the Don't Go In There After Me Award. It's for the time that I went to the bathroom after him and it was really, really smelly. Yay, 
Yeah. Yes, I have not gotten one either. So More keep going. Dundies. Dundies. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, all right. We'll keep them rolling. Okay, this is the Fine Work Award. This goes to Stanley for all the fine work he did this year. You know you did. Well, last year I got great work, so I don't. <laughs> Okay, so in that scene, it's kind of like this complete pivot, which suddenly revealed everything that I quite liked about the show that I hadn't realized that I'd been enjoying about the show until that point, which is that there's this warmth that exists within all the characters. There's a sense that everyone's kind of in it to suffer through their own lives, but every so often, like, they'll notice the weakness in another character, and they don't go to rip that person apart, but really, because people aren't terrible, it's very much like in that scene, Pam, who hates working for Michael Scott, she hates her job, she hates her boss particularly. Like, it's just a terrible existence that she lives in. But she sees that Michael's kind of collapsed and she's incredibly drunk. I think she'd have, like, way too much. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what she was drinking in that episode. It was a very big bowl of something. <laughs> but she was... <laughs> There's a joke in it where they're talking about the fact that she's got so much ice in her and when the ice is drunk, it provides, quote, unquote, second drink. <laughs> but... She's drunk a lot, but she recognizes that Michael Scott's fallen apart there, and so she actually wants to try to revive this thing that all of them actually hate the fact that they're there for it, which is the Dundies. But she still sort of realizes that this is important to Michael, and so as it's fallen apart, she's the one that starts applauding and gets everyone else enthusiastic about it. Michael shifts gears, and it stops being an excuse to make fun of everyone, and instead it becomes, uh, you know, here's some great work to Stanley. Pam gets the next award, and her award is for having the whitest sneakers in the office. And it suddenly <laughs> just becomes a really nice sort of fun, like, awards after that. And that's where the show changes. Like, I suddenly realized, wait, no, there's actually warmth and humanity to this program. And that's when I became a bit of a fan of it. Yeah, there's, um, it didn't actually take that long. Like, one of the things re-watching them back is that, you know, I kind of had this memory that the episodes where they aped or, you know, where they adapted the British series um, almost note for note um, were terrible. And then it sort of took a little while to get to turn itself around, but it really didn't take that long at all. And I think as soon as they started, um, they, they were sort of really ready to go um, with their own stories and the way they wanted to flip the character very quickly there. So yeah, it doesn't take that long for him to really turn it around at all. I found, um, the episode I just wanted to talk about really briefly was uh, one that I happened to catch just by, I say by chance, but um, that's because I'd have been watching all of the episodes, um, <laughs> uh, which is uh, season four, episode 12. So we're quite a way in here, but it's the, um, the episode's called the deposition and it's um, so, so what's that like halfway through the, the fourth series and it, and it uh, fourth season. And it is basically, I think the end of the Jan Michael storyline where, um, um jan has been fired from the company and she um jan being michael's boss jan being michael's boss and uh and, lover. and um they um yeah who's who works for corporate which is in the big city which is i guess in new york and um so it was an unlikely relationship for them to, to kind of kick off anyway but um this is about her being fired for um uh basically just for, for being terrible at her job and um and Jan trying to sue the company using Michael um, as 
a, as as a witness in her de- in in her deposition to try to uh, you know um, get him to turn against the company. It it's, it just pulls in amazing things. It it um illustrates really uh, in this really naive childlike way Michael's kind of understanding of the relationship and how it went. And you know Michael is is driven. Um, I think one of the things that is uh, you know particularly uh, appealing about him even despite his flaws is that he's really you know he, he can come across as a little bit lecherous and stuff but nowhere near to the degree of David Brent and he certainly will say you know makes mis- misogynistic and sexist comments but in the deep down you know he, he is just a lonely man who really wants a family really wants a wife and really wants kids and it's this kind of like way that they're able to sort of bend on that um you know, crassness of, you know, that that's what she said jokes and all that kind of thing to actually, you know, you, you, you kind of don't really believe that he is this horrible skis bag because you get, um, you know, these really beautiful insights into what he actually wants out of life. And it's all really sad. And, you, you know, they, they use that to sort of pivot much the same way as that scene before, but, um, you know, it's revealed in the episode during the deposition that Dan, uh, that Jan has um, stolen Michael's diary and they're reading parts from it. And it's all very, it's all very sad for Michael, but the way he handles it is just is just so brilliant. And this is an episode that's got some really heavy themes and really plays into that relationship. But in the same, but at the same time, it's just extremely funny. Like it has got so many laugh out loud moments. It's um almost every almost every line from the actual uh, official deposition where they're sitting down is hilarious. Every response Michael gives that isn't heartbreaking and sad is you know, laugh out loud, funny. And it, it, and it just manages to, to cram all that stuff into that one episode so well. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention about that, that I really enjoyed about that season four is that we're, we're first introduced to Jan. She's very much the kind of, um, she's, she's one of the characters in like the rest of the office who are, you know, the, the um, sensible, uh, it, it's it's like the character that we're supposed to relate with watching this crit- ridiculous stuff happen that we also see with later on down the track with David Wallace and with um, a few of the other uh, characters that aren't so over the top. They're, they're these, you know, um, and, and they do even where they're relatable characters and it's like, oh, this normal person's getting drawn into this um, ridiculous world. But we very quickly see uh, with Jan and with just about all those other characters that, you know, they're, it's, it's all just a bit of a facade and that they're just as messed up and stupid and ridiculous and um, conflicted and weird as everybody else in the office. And I think that's a really awesome thing this show does well is this kind of like first impressions are always like, Oh, here's a very reasonable person that doesn't quite clearly have the problems and hangups and issues that Michael and everyone else has that Michael and Dwight have. But as it goes, you you really do start to see that um that not necessarily just that they're flawed characters but that they're hilariously flawed characters you know and that's kind of the funny thing with the show as well which is that these characters all engage with other characters like just fleetingly like in one episode or just like one scene in an episode and despite the fact that these characters are acting in some incredibly sort of zany strange ways the other characters never really seem to respond to that at all they just seem to think that oh you know this is just what's going on and I think it's just that idea of what you're talking about, which is that some characters, love, they've got a sense of artifice about them, but when you actually start digging into the characters, that's when you start seeing like their uniqueness. Yes. And the show is all about the uniqueness of these characters. And getting to the core is like these sort of universal ideas about the characters that we all sort of relate to and can sort of find a bit of ourselves or people that we know or work with within these characters. And so one of the, th- one of the things that I think is great about The Office and... I look at The Office, and while I suddenly don't look at a character in the show going, oh, that kind of feels like me, or kind of feels like someone specifically that I work with, 
the general sort of idea of working in close proximity with people in an office type environment is a very universal idea. Yes. And I remember the time period that I actually really fell for the show was just after I started working with you back in like 2005. Yeah. I want to say. You're about right. Yeah. yeah. And like the show had been around for about a year or two until then. And I'd kind of written it off. I wasn't really that into it, but you kept talking it up. And so I started watching it. And just as I started watching it, it was at the, con- the beginning of season three, it must have been. Uh, and this is the season where Jim had uh, made a romantic overture towards Pam and been knocked knocked back by her. So he went off to work for another office. But within a couple of episodes, there's a decision made by corporate to close the office that Jim's gone to down. And they move all the staff from that office over into Dunder Mifflin, the office that we've been spending time in with the previous seasons. And there's this merger of the office. And because the cultures of these two offices are quite different, a lot of staff don't really enjoy their new workplace surrounds. And very quickly, they either start like quitting in droves or they get fired for one reason or another. And that just starts whittling things right back. And that exact same time period, we were working in an office where there was another competitor's <laughs> company's office that our company bought their company. And then like we made a whole bunch of new friends. But within that time period, there was a bit of attrition where some of the staff didn't necessarily make the journey over. And we kind of found ourselves living in a very similar situation to the characters on this TV show that I was watching at the time. And I remember the two of us talking about the fact that there seems to be these strong parallels between this <laughs> yeah. TV show we were watching and what was happening around us in our day-to-day office lives. Yeah. In- and like that was one, that was like one period where things definitely encroached in a very sort of realistic way. Yeah. But beyond that, the show just felt so relatable. Yeah, totally. Um, I love that idea too, that, you know, when, when, especially when you're first meeting people at work, you know, and some people are better at this. Some people are very good at this and they can manage, they manage to keep up that facade or they manage to keep up that sort of barrier from the people they work with um, for many years. Are you talking about our colleague who now pretty much runs the company? (laughs) And those people tend to do pretty well, but the, um, (laughs) for the the most of us, yeah, but for most of us, um, it's, it's just not, uh, I, for most of us, I don't think it's that easy to be able to hide our true selves for any prolonged period of time. For me, it takes about 30 minutes before I'm um, <laughs> saying embarrassing things about my past to the people that I've just barely met um, in all aspects of my life. But um, especially- I can in do an two office, and a half weeks. <laughs> yeah. And especially in an off situation. So, you know, I just think the show does that so, so very, very well over the um, the entire course of it. The characters do get a bit more ridiculous as it goes on. And, you know, I think um, maybe the kind of, uh, yeah, yeah I, I can't really pinpoint where exactly that gets crazy. Certainly Creed um, is an over the top character, but is he more over the top than- people that we've worked with in offices, certainly not, you know, so it's kind of, uh, yeah, they just do such an amazing job about of that. And um, it was interesting hearing, so I'm going to segue into talking about this podcast now, which is called the, the uh, oral history of the office is that an oral history of the office. I think it's called. Yeah. We'll call it that. If you type in the words oral history in office into any podcast search engine, <laughs> you'll find it. Um, I didn't have to type in anything. It's been barraged at me, obviously for how much um, Jim memes I share in my um, chats with you and other things. Um, the algorithm had me <laughs> sorted, but um, yeah, that was one of the great things that I really took away from that. That you know, they talk so much about how they, you know, it was very deliberate effort oh, sorry, to can, get that. Can we sort backtrack of just a second? Real office scenario. Yeah, sure. Uh, we should just say so. This podcast it's a brand new podcast that. I think it's being produced for Spotify, but I don't know if it's available on other platforms. I meant to look that up, but it's suddenly available on Spotify and it's uh, Brian, is it Baugartner? 
Uh, um, the guy that played Kevin in The Office. And so he's hosting a podcast, which over 12 episodes, he's looking at the casting of the program. He's looking at the production of the first episode. He's going through the show sort of phase by phase and talking to all of the cast, all of the behind the scenes uh, creators. He's talking even as far as like the progenitors of the UK version being Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. Like he's really gotten access. And because he was a cast member, He's just got access to everyone. It's this great sort of stories-based podcast about The Office. And everything that we've been talking about, and this is kind of why I want us to go through our background with the show, is just that we have such strong, a strong connection to the program. And this podcast like just brings it right out, like it's purposefully created to really just tap into the things that people love about the show. And you just like hear like small little stories from people and like your heart just opens up going, <laughs> oh my God, this is what it is. Because you're so connected to it because you've related so much to it. And it, it's not yeah. the only Office podcast either because there's the Office Ladies, which has Angela and uh, Jenna Fisher. And both of them are doing like a panel-based conversation kind of like we are. And they bring in someone from the show and just go through episode by episode on the show. But this is like a documentary style look at a documentary style TV program. Yeah, yeah that's right. Which And it's in a podcast form and now we're talking about it on a podcast. The levels are incredible. But um, yeah, yeah, it's hard to believe that this thing wasn't made exactly for us, Dan. Like the level of, um, some of the level of the conversation is of such a nerdy, ridiculous um level just some of the revelations though which of course i won't get into too many because it would um you know the last thing i want to do is make it less enjoyable for anyone else who wants to listen but i was fascinated with the conversations about the casting i was fascinated like hearing the cast the interviewer uh the casting person whose name you probably remember dan allison uh, i should have written it down oh, uh, it's allison jones yeah yeah who's um casted lots of things but some of the other um, programs that she mentioned that she'd cast were just uh, have have also spawned very similar um, careers for a lot of the actors involved. And I know that doesn't happen a lot, but it was just really, really cool to kind of hear um, those conversations. I think there was even some audio from some of the original casting sessions, um, which was um, Alison reading with um, the original Jim and with the original, um, and with, you know, the original Jim, with, with um, Jim, as he was talking about, you know, being one of many gyms and watching them all go in to talk with Pam. And it's just awesome. I don't think stuff. I had audio from them, but they just, like, they were talking very sort of, I guess, passionately about that time yeah, period. Yeah. Yeah. And so have you listened to, uh, so I think there's three episodes available at this point, which I was I know there's, there's four as of this morning. Four as of this morning. Great. So I've got another, I've got something else to live for today. Um, the only disappointing thing about it is, yes, there's only 12 episodes and it will end, but I guess then I can move on to the, um, the Office Ladies podcast, which I haven't actually uh, given a go yet. And, and I, I actually think I thought I, I think I thought I was listening to that when I started hitting play on this, cause I'd remembered you talking about it, but then, um, that became apparent that this was going to be, uh, something much more chronological and deep divey, which is just so, you know, that's just what, that's totally up my alley. So I'm absolutely, you know, stoked to be able to kind of go on this journey with them. And hopefully Dan, it's a massive success. And what we'll start to see is, the Cheers Oral um, History podcast come next, and then just line them all up. I'll do. I'll do every show. Bring them all on. Look, a Cheers podcast would be phenomenal. They need to get going on it pretty quickly, though, because that cast is not getting, not getting any younger. Those people, no. There's, it's it's amazing how many of them are still around, actually, and it's even more amazing how many of them are still doing stuff. But um, 
Well, they're all still around. It's only really um, Coach, so um, Nicholas Constantine. Yeah, that sounds about right. And that was and that was quite some yeah, time like he's ago. He's the only one that's passed. Yeah, really, that's amazing, isn't it? So yeah, um, please bring on all the podcasts about all the TV shows, and you know, give me something to look forward to in this grey, bleak existence. Uh, we were talking about Alison Jones a moment ago. So she's a casting agent. And if you listen to the first couple of episodes of the Oral History podcast, The Office, they talk about how important she was to casting everyone. And that's the important thing with any TV show that we've enjoyed. If there's a good casting agent, like they've actually managed totally. to do the heavy lifting on the program. Yeah, casting is such a massive part. Yeah. And like The Office is interesting because it's like it's non-traditional people that they had on the program. So not necessarily the people that got sent out for every audition like there was a lot of people yeah. who were new to the industry who suddenly just got cast in the office by Alison Jones uh, but like they talk about the character Phyllis played by Phyllis and she was Alison Jones assistant wow. for like 20 years up until the beginning of the office and yeah, they just cast her straight out hey. for that and there's uh, yeah quite a few stories like that and I mean and, and even Creed wasn't really a Creed was a wacko um, who hadn't done a lot of traditional acting even like during his part I haven't even got to him in the actual podcast yet but just from reading a lot about him over the years um it's an amazing character and um you know he's been touring with his rock band he came out here i think earlier in the year what it was going to um yeah so and you know that just obviously when you're casting something that's um all unknowns like that it's kind of going to go two ways you know you can if it, but obviously she's very very good at her job and you know it's just done an incredible job of well among the shows that she's done among the shows that she's wow. done fresh prince of bel-air uh, the pilot episode of Boy Meets World. Um, I'm going through because when you're a casting agent, yeah, you yeah. a lot of shows, a lot of movies. Uh, movies like Deep Impact, uh, the show Roswell, Freaks and Geeks. She was responsible for the casting on that program. Yeah, well, Freaks and Geeks was the one I was going to mention before because she talked a little bit about that on this. And it's just kind of like, you know, there's that was another, that was a similar situation where they were all unknowns. Um and, you know, here we are 20 years later and those people are all, a good chunk of those people are either still working in very high profile jobs or, you know, oh, look, running absolutely. Hollywood. <laughs> uh, Veep is another one so. she did, the show Love. But the one that's probably important wow. to talk about here, uh, sorry, Parks and Recreation is another one she did. But the show that's probably important to talk about here is Undeclared, which we talked wow. about on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, passingly in our Freaks and Geeks conversation. Uh, oh, yeah. Because Jenna Fisher appears in the very first episode of Undeclared. Get out! And it's just one of the many times that uh, Jenna Fisher had been cast in small roles at the beginning of her career. And you hear about it at the beginning of this podcast, and she's like, look, I'd been doing this for a couple of years. I got nowhere. Like, she got cast in a few small things here and there, a couple of pilots. And like just nothing talks. So she's like, look, this just isn't working out. I may as well just go back and, you know, try to actually have some clear direction in my life. So like this is literally the last thing she was gonna do before she exited the business. Yeah. And it was purely because of her relationship with Alison Jones that yeah. she ended up sort of talking to her about the role and went in there with full confidence and yeah, took it out. It was really funny. Uh, her perspective on it is was especially interesting because, you know, I think because she'd had that experience of being in quite a few pilots and she mentioned some of the pilots she'd been in Jenna Fisher that hadn't taken off. And so I think, I don't think she had the confidence that the show was actually going to work and that really believed that they were just going to film the pilot and that was it. And she didn't have her ex expectations up as high maybe because of that personal experience that some of the others have, like you hear, you know, Krasinski was more like, yep, this is going to, this thing's going to be amazing and huge and um, it's going to make me a star. And, and Jenna Fisher certainly didn't feel that way. So yeah, getting all these little insights, it's only going to make me want to watch the show even more if that's possible, Dan, at this stage of watching it still every night. 
Oh, look, absolutely. So, I mean, the fact that we're talking about a podcast on this podcast is strange in itself. But the reason I just got so enthused about it, and when you suggested talking about The Office, I was like, yes, this is the time to do it, is <laughs> purely because I felt such a strong connection to this program, even though The Office isn't my favourite show by, like, a long stretch. No, no. In fact, the back half of this series run, like, the first, like, five or six seasons is... You know, there's a lot of gold to be mined out of it. And then after that, the show just kind of falls apart and <laughs> really just difficult to watch a mess. Yeah. I know you don't quite feel as strongly as I do about the show not quite working as well, but like, man, it just, you know, the magic was suddenly gone in the back half. Yeah, no, I mean, I really love watching it and I'll keep watching it right to the end, but it's, um, yeah, it, it's a difficult watch towards the end. And like, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, Andy Bernard as the, um, I, I can't remember the actor's name right now off the top of my head, but, you know, him as the sort of, he does not have the same level of um, pathos and likability of Michael Scott. And when they tried to hang the show sort of all on him, it was a bit, it, it was a, it was a hard run, I think. And, you know, that changed the whole dynamic of how it played out. But, but yes, there was still, I, I still love it for the, um, you know, there's James Spader and Kathy Bates and a lot of the stuff that comes at the end, I think. And Catherine Tate, like there's a lot of like really cool things that happen at the end, even if the show doesn't work anywhere near as well as it does in the golden era. So I, I feel like there's still a, a lot of really funny people and a lot of really funny things going on that uh, make it still watchable for me. I know you really lost me at Catherine's hate then. Oh, come on. Settle down. <laughs> uh, but Ed Helms, who took over more or Ed less Helms. in the lead role on the show. Like yeah. He was a supporting character. But because he'd appeared in the Hangover movies and was one of the biggest comedy stars on the planet, it made absolute sense to try to slide him in here as the lead role on it. But the thing with that character is that he was introduced as being a complete dick. Yeah. And I don't think the show ever really did much to try to soften him in the same way that they had softened Michael Scott. So by the time that they really needed to slide him in there as the lead actor on the role, like I kind of feel the damage is already done and they kind totally. of had already picked their picked their lane for him and yes. didn't really have a way <laughs> out. No. And it, and it was just, yeah, and it's really awkward trying to watch him uh, get back into there. I mean, yeah, and, and like Steve Carell for his you know, for the understated and underplayed style of actor that he is was just, you know, was the, was the thing that held that whole show together. Um, as a, he was the, you know, the sort of the, the soul and the, and the, and the heart of the, of the show. And it, it was sorely lacking once he moved on. I read a thing recently where he just, um, they said, uh, you know, he, it was just sort of assumed he wouldn't renew his contract because he was, you know, much more famous obviously by the end of the show. And they, they assumed he was going to go off to make movies and stuff. And, that they didn't actually even try to negotiate him returning for the, uh, like beyond his contract. And he was like, Oh yeah, I probably would have done it if they'd asked me, but it seemed like they'd had enough of me sort of thing. And they were like, Oh God, we really should have asked him because that would have been pretty cool. That's it. Cause I remember like towards the end, it just kind of seemed like this assured thing. Like there were just all these news stories around about how he was such a big star now that he wasn't planning on sticking around on the show. And yeah, apparently no one so asked him like this sort of, Yeah. Which seems like a very Dunder Mifflin thing to have happened. It was just like, oh, well, we, we probably should have, you know, probably should have checked to see if that guy who was really good at this job wanted to keep doing it. Yeah, so peculiar. Anyway, Chris, let's wind out our chat this week with, there's an Australian TV show, and I don't want to call it the Australian office, but there's certainly a lot of crossover in the things that I like about the office and things that I like about this program. It's an Australian comedy called Rosehaven. Listen, you're going overseas. Tasmania. Your mum's dying. Having a minor back operation. You're going to run her business and you're terrible at business. Am I? Because she's asked my help and she's never done it before, so must think I've got some skills. Mm -hmm. 
make sure you use the white vinegar under the sink to clean the mould in the bathroom. Yep, Mum, that's more of a life tip. Is, is there anything work-related I can help you with today? We're out of milk. Oh, my God! The last three houses I went to thought it was a stripogram. What are you doing here? Oh. Tasmania had a particularly nice weather forecast this week. Hello. Daniel's told me a lot about you over the years. Oh, it's all lies. I certainly hope so. So Chris, Rosehaven, this is a program that I watched the first maybe two or three episodes of when it debuted about four years ago. And while I thought it was, you know, perfectly fine, I wasn't really that smitten by it. And then I just didn't watch it the next week and didn't get back to it again until maybe about like three or four weeks ago. But with season four starting and there's definitely a strong fandom that's developed around this yes. show. I don't, like people aren't actively just talking about it everywhere, but the couple of people that are, the people whose opinions I respect quite a fair bit, they're all very passionate about this program. And I thought, well, maybe there's something worthwhile checking out about it. And then I started like binging it like two or three episodes a night. And within about a week and a half, I kind of caught up with the current season, which just started on the ABC two weeks ago. And it was weird because I caught up with the episode that is clearly the worst episode the show's done, like, at all. <laughs> so, like, Which it was is... the first fresh episode I saw and it's like, oh, this actually isn't any good. But up until then, every episode, there's something very charming about this program. There's, like, legitimate laugh-out-loud moments. I think they're very funny. Um, the two leads, uh, you'll be reading their names. You, you probably know what their names are um, as somebody who pays attention to the uh, uh, to these things. Um, and, and I was familiar a little bit with their comedy before, um, both of them. Um, but I mean, they're very, very good and they play off each other so well. Um, I, I reckon you should say some things you like about the show and then I can say some things that I really don't like about the show. Would that be, would that be Look, good? And I suspect that things that you don't like about the show will be suddenly valid because I don't think it's a perfect show by any means. Uh, but getting to it, the two cast members, the leads are Luke McGregor and Silly Piccola. Uh, two of them are Australian stand-up comedians. And I've more or less created a show which is uh, Luke McGregor's kind of ostensibly the main character, sort of. Sort like, of. it's definitely yeah, a two-hander, yeah. though. But it's, it's sort of framed through his experience, which is that he's supposed to be the son of a real estate agent in Tasmania. Uh, he's gone down to look after his mum's business because she's had to go to hospital through the first season. Uh, he's someone who, I guess he was a real estate agent on the mainland. I don't really quite yeah. know exactly what his deal is and they kind of just gloss over that a little bit but presumably he was working as a real estate agent went to tasmania took over the family business uh his best friend the silly piccola character she was supposed to be going off to a, like get married and live a married life and you know keep on living her life on the mainland uh it falls through and i don't know how he wasn't like the luke mcgregor character wasn't like fully apprised as to what was going on because these two characters are supposed to be best friends and pretty much in his other's pockets in a way they have been for years and years. And for her to run away and then suddenly just turn up in Tasmania without Luke McGregor having heard anything about that until that point, like not even a phone call. I thought that was a bit strange. <laughs> but anyway, she turns up on the doorstep and says, hey, look, marriage didn't really quite work out after a couple of days. And then she's just hiding out in Tasmania and stays there for what seems to be four years of their lives now as the show keeps on going. Uh, so yeah. that's, that's the framework for the show. And then, like, you've got this sort of town of the sort of a little bit sort of strange, a lot of the characters, in the way that shows like Northern Exposure had strange local characters in small towns that are far removed from, uh, you know, the main sort of civilization. And sure. it's not like Rose Haven's really that far away from Hobart being the capital city of Tasmania. Have you been to yeah, Hobart? Even so. <laughs> I've been there once. And it's, it's not like Hobart's the most populous sort of place, but it's not like it's a complete sort of hick small town either. Like it's 
No, but I think it's it is a small abundant city. with it is definitely abundant with quirky characters, and I think you know, and and it's certainly I've spent a little bit of time outside of um in, oh, in the country. Sorry, areas. I should say I went to Hobart. I didn't really talk to anyone who was actually from Hobart. I just talked <laughs> to all the people that were there with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like you know, it's, I think it's a definitely a great place to pick it because it is a um you know it is a it is a place with a lot of quirky characters, as you can imagine, that somewhere a little bit isolated, um, and stuff is, and especially you know as you get out of the city of Hobart, it gets. Um, even more that way in a very, you know, in, in ways that I've only found, not that I've spent heaps of time, but in ways that I've only found very charming and very similar to the, to the way the show pans out. Um, th- I really think they're great together. They're very funny off each other. There's a, you know, it's really well-written show. There's a lot of gags, this, which is all things that are like, oh, well, it's a comedy show. It should be, but these are things that you certainly do not take for granted in Australian um, situational comedy like this. So it's, it's, a, a nice relief to get something. Oh, what is that? It's actually good. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So it's good to get that stuff. And so some of the things that really have, have been bugging me about this last season, and, and I think maybe they've been there the whole time, but maybe I just haven't noticed, but more and more, it seems like they're kind of just like, there's, it's, it's not believable to me that they are these people that are actually working these jobs and doing this thing in, in the same way that The Office and many other of these sort of workplace shows are. They really just do seem to be like two stand-up comedians who are whacked into a, who, was, who happen to be doing their shtick in a real estate office. Um, they don't sort of have any of the, um, you know, f- ferocity or uh, uh, ruthlessness or um, th- that you would expect from um, people playing real estate agents and and there's none of that sort of character and i guess that's, there's a little bit of that doesn't that also come from the fact that the real estate agency in tasmania where as you were saying like it's so yeah, far maybe. removed from the hustle bustle of like larger cities that like it, they're a lot more chill like they don't really sell many houses because there aren't really that many buyers to yeah, buy houses let alone I guess so, that many houses on sale I know what you're saying, but I still feel like it's a bit of a stretch to kind of believe that they're in this and that they've now been doing it successfully for four years, despite the fact that they have, you know, we certainly don't see them do any actual work in the show. Um, but okay, no, so, like none of those so things. On are, that, just, yeah. just on that, like while I agree with you, I think that maybe there's uh, like, I've got maybe a recency bias in that I've just watched all the episodes like smack against each other. Yeah, sure. So like, whereas you've just come to it after not having watched it presumably for like the last year while the show just not watched the on. new episodes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the last two episodes, I think, have been particularly egregious in them sort of having the real estate agency as just a bit of a background to what's going on. But if you'd watched maybe the episode that came before then, like it actually is fairly real estate heavy. Right. Like the last season was all about him trying to sell this guy's house. Like he was trying to get the listing for the house and the entire season is actually framed very much about him trying to right. sell an unsellable house. Okay, sure. Well, then so, maybe they just so yeah. To... I mean, but like I've only experienced that because I've watched the episodes literally like in the last couple of days. But if you've come to it with like a year in between, it certainly feels far removed from what should actually be the day-to-day business and what they're doing. Yeah, look, and I should um, also point out that as a lifelong um, community radio uh, person, and enthusiast, <laughs> enthusiast, I would say I was I was egregiously um, distraught by the punching down of community radio um, that they did in the first episode back this season. But you know that's just a personal uh, that that was just a personal attack and not something that I should really hold the um, hold against them. Now you sent me a message because I told you that I was doing the catch up on her and that we'd probably talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> and you'd mentioned that there's one thing that's very close to both of us that watch for it because you'll be equally outraged. <laughs> And I guessed you were talking about the community radio part, but I have to say, when I saw that, it felt very true to form. Oh, damn. That's just not 
what did you find so offensive about it? No, look, I, I just, I think the fact that it was just these guys, like, um, you know, that they were just presented as like hopeless um, FM radio wannabes, which I don't, which is not my experience in the many and varied community radio stations that I have worked and been involved in over my time. And in fact, there's, that's the last kind of person that's ever attracted to it. And that, um, that doesn't happen very often, but, um, it, it, it made sense for the setup of the show. There were some really funny things in it too, where it was that, where there was this sort of assumption by the, um, the two real estate agents that, you know, Oh God, Oh, well, that was a waste of time. Nobody's listening. But of course there is people listening and there were people listening and <laughs> that little, um, the, the, the joke that they managed to pull out of that was actually really like, was really funny. All the jokes are really funny. So so there was one that. moment in the community radio station that's like, no, this is actually completely on point, <laughs> which is that, and bear in mind that it's also supposed to be Tasmanian com uh, community radio sure, where there's sure. not a whole lot of demand for time slots in a way that you find with, you know, a radio station in Sydney or Brisbane. Sure. So there's that to keep in mind. But there's a scene where, like, they're running tight on time at the end of their show and they're like, oh, the next show's up. And you just see, like, the next hosts of the program just outside the, like, door just waiting to get in. Which is exactly how every community radio show works, which is people running a little bit overtime because they shouldn't have. And, you know, yeah, you've always got the frustrated look of the people's faces through the door. Yeah, absolutely right. And then they were, like, a bunch of boomers doing, like, a gardening show or something, which was even more. Yeah. Which is, yes, all right. That that part, all right. <laughs> was somewhat close to home. But um, no, look, the last thing I want to do is shit on an Australian comedy that's doing something good. So I just, um, I, 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 I certainly am a fan of the show and I certainly uh, am going to keep watching and um, going with what it's doing. And I think it's really funny, but I just wanted to, um, you know, shit on it a little bit, maybe. <laughs> I will say the episodes of the show that don't work as well as the other ones are the episodes that actually take it a little bit away from the like reality of the program they've established. Yeah. So when I've actually got real estate work to be done and I've got jokes around that, like the gives the show like some structure and a framework to lay jokes on top of. And when they don't have that, I don't think the show works as well. So the most recent episode being episode two of season four that we've seen. And as we record, there's a new episode coming in a couple of hours time. So it's going to seem a bit dated when people listen to this podcast, because it will take me probably about four or five days to get around to start editing it <laughs> as has been away the last few weeks. Um, but like with that episode, like, Nothing in that episode worked for me. The jokes just didn't land at all. And the episode wasn't really about like them working and doing stuff in the community as much as it was a very inward looking episode at the two of them just trying to make some friends and them just being bad people. And the show's never really been quite that. Yeah. And so yeah, when yeah. it's sort of taken it away from them having a purpose, something they're actually actively going out there to do that's removed from their own day to day, like that's where the show like lands for me. And you get the character moments through that. Totally. But when it's just purely like them having to be characters, like that's where it just feels a little bit sort of shaky. Yeah. And I think, and that's a lesson. Um, well, and that's something that, again, I think that, you know, the office when it, when it's really working well, it, um, you know, it, it, it is all based around those actual machinations of an office. And when it's kind of gets boring Look, is when it drifts off into just the relationship stuff or, and, and it's it. not. The office has the, the exact same problem. Where yeah. anytime that Michael Scott's doing stuff in the office that isn't really related to him as like a salesperson or as a manager, like none of that ever really lands entirely. No, totally. Because the workplace comedy needs to actually have the workplace taking place or else it just feels like it's far removed from the purpose of the program. Yeah. And it's funny too, like I'm not actually, you know, working in an office these days at the moment and I'm fine. And, and I was wondering whether that was um, a reason that I was more where, where I was like enjoying these 
um, workplace. <laughs> where am, am I missing some part of that, the, the horror of that sort of simple office and even the small office in Rosehaven? That's so you're watching the, uh, the office as nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh, I remember when I used to hate people that I worked with. <laughs> not you, Dan, of course, not you. Uh, that would be Son of a bitch. obvious because we're still here um, chatting to each other 20 years later, as we said. Fruit, um, so fruit yeah, teeth. <laughs> so like, yes, I, I guess we're about, if that's three episodes, Brosehaven's going to be six episodes, is it? Or eight episodes or something. So we're probably halfway through the new ones. And um, yeah, I think eight I'll, episode I'll seasons. It, yeah. And I'll watch it to the, I'll watch it to the end. It's very, it's, it is very funny and it's great to see something on there. I hope they, um, I hope that they, uh, yes, get, get on track for the, for the last few and give us some more big laughs. I can't imagine as much Rosehaven left. Like surely, like this is like a four to five season show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I don't know how you can, how long you can keep because they're both in this weird stasis, you know. Like the char- characters themselves, like she's obviously just sort of like it. It really feels like she's treading water with her life, and that you know she hasn't managed to find herself back on track yet. But maybe that's not necessary. It doesn't seem like they're setting up to be for them to get together. That's for sure. Um, and it doesn't seem like. Uh, you know, and, and he's kind of in this stasis too, where he's like, it doesn't seem like he's going to be a real estate agent forever. So it's kind of, it doesn't feel like the characters are kind of, you know, it, it it's not obvious where the characters are going to go next. I don't think. And, and maybe it needs a little yeah. bit of that sort of direction in order for it to kind like, of keep going. Like it does. Cause I think the show's just going to feel very stale very quickly if they don't start addressing that. But also once you start giving them a bit more purpose and direction, like that's the end of the program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, totally. It really feels like 40 episodes, and that's probably the, the and that cap on it. So by a... the end of the season, it'll be in 32. So I guess one more season. And... Yeah. Yeah, cool. All right, let's give him one more. Get on the phone to the people. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. But yeah, I mean, I'm also just curious. Like, I'd like to see these two doing another show. Me too. I'd, I absolutely would love to. I think they're fantastic. And, and, you know, together would be great. But I think whatever either of them end up doing is going to be really good. Um, I think they're both writers too, right? Like, they're both writing it. I think yeah. it's just them. Like, they created the show. Else. They're writing it. Like, yeah. Like, it's extremely yeah. well written. But no, I'd like legitimately like to see these two as a partnership coming back into another show together. Just entirely different framework. And What should it be? See what they, yeah. I don't know. Let's... <laughs> I don't know. Two community radio hosts. <laughs> I'm glad I put you on the spot. And that was the best you could come up with, but that's all right. <laughs> it was on the spot. Um, yes. So Rosehaven on the ABC on the iView app. Um, I guess you can only watch it in Australia, I guess, right? Uh, well, it's actually a co-production with IFC in the US. So ah. uh, you can watch it on IFC, there which is on a whole bunch of streaming services and whatnot in there. US. So it's certainly around. Like a lot of critics from the US have discovered this program and have been talking it up quite a fair bit. Yeah, I'm not surprised because especially, I mean, it does have that very, you know, Australian suburban kind of vibe to it, which is very unique and interesting. And yeah, so I'm not surprised that it would be resonating a little bit. Yeah. It's also just very universal. Mm, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, Chris, probably brings us to the end of the podcast, I'd imagine. I think so. Yeah. Uh, this has been Always Be Watching. We'll be back next week. We're going to talk about some shows, maybe something more contemporary. <laughs> maybe. Is like, there anything? Rory's Roy, Haven's contemporary, I guess. But, yeah. You know, is... Whatever. Hopefully there'll be something I want to watch. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things. So like over the next few months, we're going to start seeing some of the sort of bigger releases for the TV shows that have been already finished. But because production's kind of been a bit disrupted and they're trying to pace things out a little bit. Like, no one knows exactly when new shows are going to be back. So some shows just being delayed slightly and there's definitely 
some flexibility happening and fewer big new shows coming out on a regular basis. Sure. So who the heck knows? We'll be here either way, Dan. I'm sure of it. Indeed we will. Anyway, this has been Always Be Watching. You can find us on the web at alwaysbewatching.com. At that website, you'll find a newsletter you can sign up to, which gives you all the news stories you need to get through your day. Because if you don't know what's happening in the TV and film industry, I don't know really how you're living your life. But anyway, this will get you across it. Uh, you can do that. You can find us on Facebook, where there's a little community of people talking all day, every day about the television I've been watching. Uh, you can find Chris and I, like, just... Well, I'm not really even walking the streets anymore. No, I don't go like, anywhere. Bit, I don't do anything. It'd be a bit weird if you like bumped into any of us because it means that you're probably in our respective lounge rooms. Yeah. Which, you know, you're welcome. Yeah. Drop in I guess. anytime. I've got, I've got a spare couch. <laughs> Actually, it's I might more need like to a take you up on... like an armchair. Can I, can I, I might need to take you up on that offer sometime soon. I feel a bit isolated <laughs> out here. I need to visit the city yeah, okay. again. <laughs> well, you know where I am. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, folks, this has been Always Be Watching. We'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Two fine men, so dissimilar in many respects, and yet... Yet so similar in others.